Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hi, I'm Pascal Finette. I'm the co-founder of Be Radical, and I'm here with an old friend of ours, Andy Billings. Andy and I met quite a while ago through a mutual contact at Singularity University. And when I first met Andy and he gave me his title, which is Head of Profitable Creativity at Electronic Arts, I was curious and my heart made a few uh, jumps because I'm an old time gamer and Electronic Arts, of course, is a a huge name in the gaming community. And we'll talk a little bit more about what this means in terms of like how you approach innovation, et cetera. But your title is insane. First of all, super happy to have you here, but explain to us a little bit what this is. Thanks, Pascal. And uh, it's great to be back with an old friend having this conversation. Profitable creativity actually probably applies to a lot more than just game companies, because all of us need to be innovative and that always gets sparked by creativity. When you put creativity inside of a corporation, especially a publicly held corporation, which maybe doesn't have a soul, according to some people, how do you keep passion and fire and creativity alive and still have predictable earnings and transparency and all the other kinds of things that don't really go along necessarily with the creative process? So profitable creativity is working with our creative leaders and our organization to retain and protect that kind of spark and that flame of creativity. And at the same time, have them be aware of the constraints of profitability and predictability and reliability and to build that into the way we make games, the way we are creative, so that we can simultaneously be creative and profitable at the same time. I think you're hitting right the heart of what I believe many um, leaders, particularly in incumbent in established companies, actually facing this challenge between how do I get my people to be creative, innovative, maybe even disruptive, and at the same time maintain that focus on profitability and creating actual value uh, for the company, for the shareholders, for the for the communities, the societies, etc. Can you say a little bit more about like what is your approach here? How do you how do you go about this? How do you solve this weird conundrum? You know, in the early going, people said, "Do not talk to creative people about business expectations. Let them be in their own bubble." Sometimes people would call it the sandbox. Somehow put up curtains around them so they're not seeing the realities of the business world. And so we tried to pull those curtains down and say, hey, creative people and leaders, you need to understand the business realities of the entertainment business and of making games and of where you're spending money in your creative process. And we found that those creative leaders, they have mortgages to pay, they save for their retirement, they, uh, they run their budgets. They were really able to completely grasp business realities, and they're able to actually use those in a, in a constraint way to actually be more creative. So I, I remember one, uh, you know, one example, I mean, in the early going, as we were starting to build our assets online, the creative and, the, and especially artists would spend lots and lots of time building something, literally, which equates to thousands and thousands of dollars, but it was in the background. 
you know, and no one actually paid attention to it. And so as they started to understand my time is money, these resources cost money, it helped them to kind of focus on what's going to have the most impact with their audience. Where should I really concentrate? And so the artists were saying, you know, that tree that we're spending thousands of dollars on, we aren't going to do that anymore. We're going to spend it on the characters and the story where things really count. And so the creatives became really great at figuring out how to make games in a more profitable way. So we didn't separate it. We fused it. Do you think that that formula works both for innovation as it does for disruption? And uh, the, the, the kind of like the framework we use, and it's not from us, but the framework we're using um, to talk about innovation is kind of like innovation is making the same things just better. Disruption is when you create something which makes the old thing obsolete. And I'm, I'm wondering, does this work in your world, in your experience, does this work both ways? I'm really trying to understand that question. It's kind of what I'm trying to do, my friend. <laughs> um, but I think that if I would, let's just see if we have some common language. I, I would call creativity is taking capital and turning it into ideas. Innovation is taking ideas and turning them into capital. So I would see creativity as the way of, <clears throat> you have to spend money to have creativity, which doesn't really make any, there's no monetary value until we turn it into innovation. And so I'm always thinking about, it's great to have creativity, but that's never enough. And it's certainly never enough in the face of disruption, which you know, absolutely requires innovation, which is this kind of applied creativity. So I definitely see that connection between creativity and, and, and innovation. And to me, the connection with disruption is if you don't innovate, you're going to perish. You can't innovate without creativity. I like I, I really like the the distinction and the connection between creativity and innovation. I haven't actually in my world, I've never really thought about this. Now, you do a lot of leadership development, both in your role at in your various roles at EA over the time, but also, of course, in your personal life. And um, you've volunteered at organizations, even like Singularity University at our accelerator program. From your perspective, do you think that you can make every and any leader creative? Or is there something which makes you a creative versus a business leader, for example? I think everyone's got a fair measure of creativity. I think you talked about different levels of innovation, or and I would say those are different levels of creativity. And so I, I think not everyone's got those levels. So we, we talk about three levels of innovation, the incremental that you talked about, which is you know, making good things a little bit better or even better. And we also have a middle category that we call breakthrough innovation, which is you make things substantially different and you change a lot. And, it, and that's, an, that's a breakthrough innovation. You've become probably best in class. The third category, disruptive, and as you said, that's innovation that makes current ways of doing things become obsolete. I, I think that it takes special leaders who can do the breakthrough and who can do that very, very rare form of disruptive change. So all of us can do incremental. The good news, by the way, is that at Electronic Arts, and I think in most creatively oriented organizations, incremental and just a little bit of breakthrough is all, all that you need to be successful. The idea of going for disruptive change, that thing is the most rare thing. I, I've been in Electronic Arts a long time. I could probably only point to maybe a couple of things which I would say have truly been disruptive that have come out of our house. So it's, yes, I think creativity, everyone's got it. The special forms to get breakthrough and beyond, that's the, those are probably special individuals. And then is in your world, 
breakthrough or disruption and you know quite frankly you can't read a business article these days anymore without the word disruption you can't clearly not come to singularity university without us telling you you will get disrupted uh, do you think it's overrated then i think that there's still a fair amount of disruption so i don't think that part is overrated my great grandparents ran an ice company in the midwestern united states And they got disrupted by refrigeration because they put ice on railroad cars. And so they were they were able to handle that kind of disruption. So I think I think disruptive change has been with us for a long, long time. I think that its frequency is probably overrated. There are there haven't been a dramatic number of disruptive innovations, you know, say in the last 10 years, but there have been some. I think what's maybe overrated is. Is it really possible to be planful, thoughtful, effective, well-organized, and linear in managing disruptive change? You know, I think when you talk to people on the front line, they go, it doesn't look like what it's described as in the books. Wow. Okay. Let me ask you, and then I want to want to tilt a little bit towards leadership. I know you're like you've got an, um, a very interesting perspective on leadership and and a passion around this. But just to stay a, a tiny moment longer in the innovation disruption field. So when when I think about um, media companies, entertainment companies like an Electronic Arts, but also, of course, movie studios, etc., uh, there's an interesting challenge I find and I try to wrap my head around, which is the amount of money for you to put out a product is staggering. Like the amount of money for, I don't know, even in Electronic Arts to like produce another game blockbuster game is on par or higher than movies these days, right? How do you manage risk in that innovation process? Like it just breaks my brain because there is no, you know, like Silicon Valley has this like, you know, like iterate fast and rapid prototyping and so on, which is beautiful. And lots of startups can do this. And, you know, in our practice, we do it a lot. But how do you do this in, in a world where like everything just hinges on this massive breakthrough hits because you spend so much, you have to spend so much time to produce them? Well, we've been working on this for about 30 years now to try and get better at this. So it certainly hasn't come immediately. We have a framework, a development framework that, you know, all your listeners would recognize around has a big funnel at the beginning where we have many, many ideas. There's no shortage of ideas, electronic arts. I mean, every time you have a coffee, there's five more game ideas come out of that one, you know, one coffee. So I think where our success is, is that we have a very clear path to carry our game ideas forward, increasingly investing in them, and that we have many eyes on those game concepts throughout its life cycle. And we call them gates, and it's a stage gate kind of approach. And not every not every game gets through every gate. Some will go on. We, we like to say games never get killed. They just go on pause. And so we have, you know, literally hundreds of people will look at the game. And now extensively, we have players playing early versions of the game We have people that we partner with that come inside the company that are game players in our target audience. They play the early versions of games and give us a huge amount of feedback. So progressively, as the concept goes from an idea to prototypes to playable versions, and in today's world, we can quickly be prototyping software, audio, story, characters, visual, and those are just progressing further and further along through development. And at a certain point we go, wow, we think we have proven out this game to be fun. We're going to put serious money and people behind it. But that often takes years of incubation before we get to that 
thing. So we don't necessarily say this game right at the start is going to be a hit. We have to go through this quite involved process. Now, now a new game, a new intellectual property, as we call it, takes four to six years and can be hundreds of millions of dollars to, to create. Four to six years brings up an interesting question for me. So one thing I'm grappling with is this, and I'm curious how you handle this and how you think about this, is this notion that if you look at a startup, for example, or you look at a breakthrough idea, or in your case, the game, it takes a quite a while to actually develop you know, from beginning to end. So four to six years, startups take seven years on average, et cetera. Now, the challenge I find is that in many companies, the average tenure, so the average tenure of a Fortune 500 CEO is already only five years and it's declining. But we also have a tendency in companies, particularly larger established companies, to take our high potential managers and rotate them through. And very often they stay with a property, in your case, maybe a game, only for about two years. And I find that there's a really interesting challenge in like, how do you actually create longevity in these efforts, particularly if they're breakthrough, if they require a lot of like, you know, hand wringing and like original idea. And how do you reconcile this with the fact that, you know, people don't stay that long in their in their positions? And maybe you do this differently at, at Electronic Arts. Well, certainly the world is moving towards briefer tenure in positions, at, at least in the games business. There'll be a handful of people that carry the vision and carry the spark. And it's very unusual not for them to see that game all the way through to completion. And they will often stay, even if they wouldn't say that I'm in love with the company or I'm in love with everything around me, they're so dedicated to that vision that they will stay. And the people that will rotate in and out are, are playing supporting roles or they're playing executional roles. But there are, there are, there are key people that they, they hang in there they might leave after they've launched the game. And if we should ever lose one of those people during the game, that's that's a red alert um, on the future success of the game. So we, we have a long tenure um, in our game makers. That's interesting. I think that's, uh, quite frankly, my observation working with many large-scale organizations around the world is, uh, is, is probably unique to your business. So I've seen this in many Fortune 500s where the person who came up with a great idea at the moment that idea like gets a little bit of traction and you know like management sees that wow this is the next big thing they promote the person away because the person is like so amazing at like coming up with new ideas right and unfortunately at least my experience is that then the idea kind of goes nowhere because exactly what you described the the initial spark seems to miss i was going to say one of the things that you're you're triggering in the games business we take a somewhat different organizational business model to making entertainment than you see in films or plays or books. In a film, for instance, you have creators that assemble around them support. And as soon as that entertainment piece is over, they go on to the assemble a new team. They're basically an independent unit. Same for a playwright um, or a book author. They're, they're really independents and they'll assemble a team around them. In the games business, we've tried to bring those game makers into the organization and keep the organization to be the constant and make it a, 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 a place they want to stay. So for us, the work environment, the creative environment, it's just right at the top of the list in terms of the most important things we pay attention to. Interestingly, one of the biggest predictors of hit success of a game is the health of the team that's creating it. And we measure 
that as part of our profitable creativity. We want to make, we want to have consistency in making hits. And so we know that that's only possible if the team is committed to the quality, the team feels the game is going to be successful. And the team feels like I have, I'm in the right environment for me um, to, to do the, do my best work. And so we, we measure that regularly and spend a, a huge amount of effort to try and create that climate. How do you measure the health of a team? What are the factors you're looking at? I think that they're universals, I think, around a healthy collaborative team. Do, do you support and share the vision of the team? What we're trying to create, are you energized and committed to getting that accomplished? Do you feel like you have the tools and resources to make you effective? And you feel like you're appreciated and respected and, and in an environment where you're doing your best work. Those are, you know, we have many items and measures and so forth for that, but those are really the kind of straightforward ones, I think, that drive human engagement, human creativity and productivity. We just put a huge amount of effort onto cultivating those factors. Kind of makes me wonder how many companies out there are actually measuring this. My gut feeling would be not that many, sadly. Andy, you do a lot of work in leadership development, both inside of uh, Electronic Arts as well as in many of your other endeavors, supporting startups, doing work in nonprofits, etc. We have to come somewhat to COVID-19 because I think it puts a very interesting and uh, very challenging strain on us in terms of our leadership capabilities. In terms of like thinking about leadership from your perspective, when you have a young leader who would come to you today and says like, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't even know when, where to start and what is important anymore because everything has shifted and everything is being put in question. What is your piece of advice? What do you tell them? What do you say to them these days? Yeah, that's, that, you know, that I'd say that's probably coming up on a daily basis and, you know, including for me personally, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm just like everyone else kind of struggling with the ups and downs. And I always think about kind of three things that are just super important for a leader to create kind of in the minds and the hearts of their team, which is clarity as much as possible, energy and value, which is productivity. So, so clarity is to the extent possible, are we clear on where we're going? And as a leader, can I absorb any of the ambiguity that's just massive around the virus? And can I take out a couple of the choices? Can I put some parameters around things which give us a little more clarity and reduce the ambiguity. So, so do people have a sense of where they're trying to go? The energy is, boy, we're all having ups and downs. And so to the extent that you can help people kind of reconnect with what's motivating and energizing to them and making sure they're getting some of that and their kind of their daily work diet. And then value, boy, it, we sure can't forget about being productive and getting work to, to be accomplished in value. And I think so many people you know, get a huge amount of their motivation out of getting work accomplished. So I just try and simplify it, you know, just clarity, you know, is my team as clear as possible? Do they have as much energy as possible? And are we generating the right amount of value for what we're doing? And, you know, I, I think you could, you got to do them all three simultaneously. I love the, the trifecta. I really like the simplicity around this. Uh, from your practice as a leader, what do you do to do the self-care, right? Because it, it requires, it sounds to me, it requires a lot of, as a leader, being very centered. And there's a, an even greater emphasis on absorbing a lot of the 
ambiguity and the stresses from the outside and and being this shield in front of your team, which then requires you also to take great self-cares. I, I wonder if you've got any out of your own practice, like how do you how do you deal with that? Leaders are absolutely just as as human. I know not everyone believes that, but they're pretty much as human as as the as the rest of us. I think the ability to talk about things and get them into the conversation is hugely releasing and encouraging to people. We're all dealing with a sense of isolation. So I like to be the person that says, I'm feeling X and Y. Who else is feeling that? And so they'll hear the leader say that and they go, well, me too. Now, let me tell you, I dreamed about this and then this came up in my family. And then you've kind of created a climate for conversation of these kinds of things. And I believe that if you can mention something, you can manage it. If they're unmentionable, they're unmanageable and they're kind of out of control. So we should talk about, are we going to keep our jobs? Um, under what circumstances will we keep our jobs? Um, you know, where do we think this is going? What do we know? What's, what's, you know, what's it like, you know, having the kids in your lap, that kind of uh, open conversation and the leader being willing to kind of to role model, you know, I'll be the first one to kind of mention, you know, some of this stuff isn't, isn't much fun. I think those things kind of open it up for people to talk and then they find out, you know, I'm not alone in this, which is a huge amount of social connection. And I think that also helps people feel like I'm not falling behind. I think in situations with most organizations have high achieving people and those people carry a certain amount of insecurity about their achievement. They're going to likely feel insecure about, am I accomplishing enough? Am I as productive? You know, most of us in the first couple of weeks ago, man, I'm like, my productivity is way down. I can't concentrate. I'm just reading the newspaper and I'm hearing all this news. Man, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm having a hard time. And so I think then people go, okay, well, I'm not falling behind. I'm, I'm ready to continue to work hard and, and keep at it. Being a role model of mentioning the uncomfortable, awkward, you know, side of the experience is just tremendously helpful. In a similar spirit, or it actually the same spirit, one of the very first, I want to call it like a team building leadership exercises I've seen you do, which you brought to a program I used to run at Singularity University, the Accelerator program, is this um, collective sharing in a team of your life's journey. And you have a, a truly wonderful framework for this. And um, we've repeated this many times. And it was always rated as one of the most highest rated and most meaningful experiences we did in terms of leadership development. Two-part question. First is, can you, for the listeners who don't have the experience, can you talk us through a little bit how you do this experience? And, you know, because it is relatively simple to do yourself. And then talk a little bit about what do you, from your perspective, why actually do you use this? And what, like as the, as a developer of leaders of a, of teams, what does it do for you? It's a really simple process, and it's just it seems like the most powerful things are always the most simple things. It's basically telling your story, and humans are completely wired for story. And if there isn't a story, we make up a story. And so a leader will tell their story around. How did I get a sense of being called to be a leader? And what were my highlights and what were my lowlights? And so just logistically, the way we'll do that is you can do this digitally too, is just on a surface, you're kind of just doing kind of like your stock index going up and down. What were my highlights? What were my lowlights? And you're kind of identifying for people, how did those highlights and how did those lowlights, things which were discouraging or depressing or setbacks shape, shape me in my career to where I am today? 
And people naturally unfold a story visually on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard. And then when they explain that to other people, I think a couple things happen. One, well, first people love listening to it because we all listen, you know, like to listen for stories. And we hear the humanity of people around, we're not always just successful. It's just not always the way it looks in the company brochure. It's, you know, there are ups and there's downs and people resonate with the way you've been able to handle and overcome them. And for the person telling the story, I mean, there's just nothing better than to feel like you're recognized and seen, kind of this idea of just other people see you for, for what you are in your story. And that's just, um, people often cry and um, are, are deeply emotional about the idea of one, this is my story, which means so much to me. And secondly, you know, for the opportunity to share it with an audience that's listening and not judging, you know, did you have a good life or, you know, did you have a good outcome? And so it's, it's a great technique to get people to understand their own story and where they might be going next and then to connect the group together. Yeah, I absolutely adore this. And I've brought it in many, many uh, situations where we dealt with teams and needed to get the team to to really gel um, and come together in a very quick amount of time. Let me ask you uh, one more question around this topic. You run an absolutely amazing leadership program at Electronic Arts, where I got the great pleasure and fortune and honor to um, speak occasionally. In your view, in terms of developing leaders, if you have some practical advice or tips, like, and when you look at your leadership development program, what is the most valuable thing you can do, the best bang for your buck, so to say, uh, to develop team and to develop leaders? A couple of things come to my mind, Pascal. First of all, if you really want lasting leader development and meaningful development, it takes some time. This is not something that you can accomplish in one 30-minute webinar or one impactful inspirational talk. And so I know we often kind of look for those silver bullets, but I actually believe it, it does take a little bit of time and a little bit of investment over time to help leaders make, you know, get on the journey and, and make time. So part of that's just being realistic about the, the time investment and the depth that you need to get, get into. I think one of the things that um, works very well for us is we call them leadership forums. And we we love our speakers like Pascal Fanet, and we love our executives, and we love the beautiful leadership development content. But one of the things that leaders consistently talk about is their leadership forums. And that that's like a family pod, six, seven, eight people in a group. They work together. They get to know each other. We have some very, very strict rules that we follow in that format. When we're together, they'll meet two or three times. And then when we're apart, they'll meet digitally once a month, 90 minutes. It's the one meeting in people's calendar they never miss. They're very committed. And after the program ends, they, they continue them. And so maybe one of the most important rules besides confidentiality and safety, and we, we, we help the teams get the right climate, is there is absolutely, unequivocally, never any advice giving. Because advice giving basically kind of conveys, I'm smarter than you. And advice is rarely 100% on target because can't know everything about the individual's circumstances. So people often smile and say polite things like, thanks for the advice. What you are doing, though, is sharing your experience. So, Pascal, if you said, you know, my revenues just went down precipitously and I'm really trying to figure out, you know, how to return to profitability at some point, I wouldn't say, well, Pascal, the thing you should do is X, Y, and Z. I would say, though, Pascal, I remember when that happened to me over here, and I did these two or three things, 
I'm just offering those just in case any of those ideas are useful to you. And you pick out of my experiences what's useful. And many times, my experiences aren't that useful to you. But what's interesting is that I've gone through it, still alive on the other side, and go, okay, well, if Andy can get through this, I could get through this. And so that kind of a process repeated over time on very challenging leadership and business issues you know, creates an environment where people will share you know, deep, deeply personal challenges. And again, one of those things that's kind of simple, but very powerful. Wow, I love that. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of a, a tool we have, we call the Doubt Club, which is a very similar idea where you get people together and uh, you talk about your doubts and um, it's uh, progressively deeper rounds of like doubts. You know, start out with a doubt about your product and you end up with a doubt about like you as a person. And we have the exact same rule, which is no advice, right? It's just about listening and uh, you, can, you can deepen the question. Uh, you can say like, tell me more about this and you can offer own experiences, but never advice. Yeah, no, I think I've, I learned about the doubt clubs from you. And I think you progressively take people through progressively. Like I have these doubts about the environment. I have these doubts about my products and services. I have these doubts about my company. Wow, I have these doubts about myself. Now you're kind of really down to a core level. And that's, you know, that's the active ingredient, I, I think, of all these things. And be able to share that and, and, uh, and hear what other people have also experienced. And you've got a wealth of experience and you've got an incredible uh, career behind you and you've got an amazing career ahead of you. And I'm curious, what are you excited about today? Um, I know that you are dabbling in so many different things outside of just your core and, and you give so much to the, the community. What is it you're like getting super excited about today? I think that, um, you know, at this part of my career, I'm probably done climbing the corporate ladder. And just like everyone else, spent a lot of time trying to get higher on that ladder. And so now I'm really excited about trying to hold the ladder for other people. I'm not trying to personally get up that ladder. I'm not trying to knock anyone down that ladder. And so it's just tremendously rewarding to hold the ladder for others and to be the person that's maybe got a little more patience, a little more steadiness, kind of a little more ability to go, okay, I don't have to get any higher on that ladder to accomplish what I want to accomplish. It's now it's enabling others to do that. And that's just a tremendously rewarding experience to have. And, and you know, when you're freed from that kind of that inner crazy push to, you know, be more and more and more successful and let's figure out how to enable it for others. Do you think that is something we can have early in our career or is it something which is the luxury of having had a career? You can get glimmers of it, I think, early in your career, for sure. Um, especially if you're in some kind of a non-competitive situation. But, you know, when you think about it, most high achieving people have a competitive streak in them around, I want to be the best. I want my product to be the best, my company to be the best. I'd, I'd like to be the best. And, and so at, at a certain point, I think you start to realize there's always someone better than you out there. They're smarter, faster, more athletic, better looking. And, and so I think you start to not chase all of that as much. And so you're just a little more free than you would maybe be earlier in your career to do that. On that beautiful note, I, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I know you're very, very busy as many of us are, um, you know, dealing with many fires and supporting the communities around us. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you also so much for all the work and all the help you've given to the community and which I have witnessed Uh, with all the the people around me and whom you have supported so uh, thank you so much and um, we wish you all the best and uh, 
yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing your, your uh, wisdom and your insights. Pascal, thanks so much for the chance to talk to you and to uh, have a little bit of time this afternoon to be radical. <laughs>